We are um, in week four of a series on the book of Ephesians. So we're in week four uh, of a series on the book of Ephesians. So we've got a cool little graphic up here of a picture that Brendan Bergen did for us. So uh, we're actually looking at Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 22 today. And uh, just a quick recap. Um, The first week we talked about Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 through 14. And uh, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 through 14 you know, first of all, Paul is in prison in Rome, 62 AD. And so what's interesting about this is he's writing, you know, from Rome, he's writing from prison. But the sort of the tenor of the book is actually really hopeful. It's really encouraging. He must not know that in about, you know, two years, he's going to probably be beheaded. And so uh, it's easy for him to have some hope at the moment. But I think actually his hope is precisely in opposition to his um, context that he finds himself in. And so in chapter 1, he says this. He says to this Ephesian uh, church or group of churches, he says, look, you need to be hopeful because you've been chosen by God for adoption, right? In other words, you're now daughters and sons. God chose you to be daughters and sons. You've been chosen for redemption. And this idea of redemption is that God somehow takes the dignity that you were originally created with as being created in his image and the image of God and your brokenness, right, your depravity, And somehow creates you as a redeemed person that's actually even more beautiful than you would have been beforehand. And he says, you've been chosen by God for redemption. You've also been chosen by God to be holy and blameless, and here's the key phrase, in his sight. You've been chosen by God to be holy and blameless in his sight. That's great news for those of us in the room who kind of go, hey, look, I know I ain't holy and I am not blameless. Um, But the good news is when we trust in Christ, God looks at us and he sees us as holy and blameless. It's good news. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 through 23. Essentially, again, this book is, is written by Paul to this group of Ephesians churches. There's no explicit sort of problem they're dealing with, um, other than the fact that they're Gentile believers. They're pretty new believers, and they don't really know um, the sort of the details or, you know, all the, uh, all the basics of Christianity. And so Paul is essentially writing to remind them of some of these basics. And so in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 through 23, he says, you know, I pray that you might know God, that you might know his hope, and you might know his power, right? And what's great about that section about knowing his power is that he talks about his power for you. In other words, that God is fighting for you, that he's using his power, the very same power that created the world, the very same power that raised his son from the dead. That power God is using on your behalf to protect you, right, to sanctify you, to build you up. And then last week, we talked about Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. And basically, Paul said, if you remember, the problem was, before you trusted in Christ, you were spiritually dead, right? You were dead to God. You were spiritually deaf. And he says, not only that, but you were living under the control of the world, the flesh, and the devil. In other words, those three things were really informing how it is that you lived your life, how it is that you saw yourself in this world. But the good news was, he said, be encouraged by this, that God has made us alive. Be encouraged by the fact that he loves us. Obviously, he sent his son to die for you, so he loves you. He loves us. And then he goes on to say, you need to be encouraged because God is in the process of completing our redemption. And not just that, in the same way that Jesus gets to sit at God's right hand because his redemptive work is done, you too get to sit at God's right hand because Christ has done everything that's required for your redemption. And so you can simply sit and rest in heaven above because everything has been done in order for you to be completely restored to Jesus. It's good news. And again, that's what Paul is writing this letter for over and over again. He's reminding 
these Ephesian churches of the basics of Christianity, but also the good news um, of what they have been saved from and what they've been saved to. This morning, again, we're going to be looking at verses 11 through 22, and this theme sort of of Christianity 101 continues even in these verses. And so follow along with me, if you will, verses 11 through 22 of Ephesians chapter 2. Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself, that is Jesus, is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. By setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations, his purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, that is Jews and Gentiles, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them, Jews and Gentiles, to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access to the Father by one spirit. That is, Jews and Gentiles have access to the Father by the Spirit because of Christ's work, not because of good works, not because of the absence of bad works. Verse 19, consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling place in which God lives by his spirit. Let's take a moment and let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for um, these words, not only the words um, of Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 22. But Father, we thank you for um, the words of Scripture, which give us the ability to see again who you are and give us the ability to see who we are. Father, pray that you would give us the ability to remember who we were, uh, what our uh, former situation uh, and dilemma was, and I pray that you would also enable us to remember what our current situation is because we're in Christ and therefore we have hope. And so, Father, we pray all these things today in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Hello! 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 Who is it? It is King Arthur, and these are my knights of the round table. Whose castle is this? This is the castle of my master, Guido Lombard. Go and tell your master that we have been charged by God with a sacred quest. If he will give us food and shelter for the night, he can join us in our quest for the Holy Grail. Well, I'll ask him, but I don't think he'll be very keen. Uh, He's already got one, you see. What? He says they've already got one. Are you sure he's got one? Oh, yes, it's very nice. I told him we already got one. Well, um, can we come up and have a look? Of course not. You are English types. Well, what are you then? I'm French. Why do you think I have this outrageous accent, you silly king? 
What are you doing in England? Mind your own business. If you will not show us the grail, we shall take your castle by force. You don't frighten us, English pig dogs. Go and boil your bottom, sons of a silly person. I'll blow my nose at you, so-called Arthur King. You and all your silly English niggas. All right, for those of you who have never seen Monty Python and the Holy Grail, quality movie, quality, a little bit of a cult film, but uh, obviously the scene there is uh, that, uh, uh, you know, the, the English knights have come up to this castle, these huge walls, and uh, the Frenchman who's on top of the walls basically is making fun of them and saying, you know, there's no way you can come in here. And uh, part of the reason I use that little um, idea today is, is sort of this sort of this idea of being outside of the walls, of being separated from someone else, whether that's being separated physically or emotionally or spiritually. Um, I ran across a little book recently uh, called Walls, Travels Along the Barricades by a man named Marcelo Di Cintio. And, uh, and essentially in this book, he says this, read or follow along with me, just listen as I read a little section from this book. He says this, human beings have always been preoccupied with building walls. In the first century, the Roman emperor Hadrian built a 75-mile wall across Roman Britain. In the 1870s, Argentina built a line of walls and watchtowers called the Zunga de Alcina to protect Buenos Aires from invasion by indigenous peoples. The Berlin Wall went up in 1961, dividing east from west almost 30 years. In 1975, South Africa built a 3,500-volt electric fence dubbed the Snake of Fire to keep the civil war in Mozambique from spilling over into the frontier. In the middle of the night, in August 2006, Italian officials constructed a steel wall around Via Anelli, a rundown neighborhood known for drug trafficking and prostitution. And then he goes on to say this about how walls affect us, how they impact us. He says this, walls don't just divide us, in other words, physically divide us, they make us ill. After the Berlin Wall went up, East German psychiatrists observed that the Berlin Wall caused mental illness, rage, dejection, and addiction. The closer to the physical wall people lived, the more acute their disorders. In other words, the closer they were to the physical wall, the more these emotional disorders seemed to rise. The only cure for what he calls the wall disease was to bring the wall down. Sure enough, in 1990, psychiatrists noted the emotional liberation felt after November 9, 1989, when the wall finally fell. Thousands of jubilant Germans climbed the wall, wept, and embraced each other atop the concrete and proceeded to tear the wall down with joyful abandon. Right? So here's the point of this. So here in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 22, we see that Paul is using this sort of idea of a wall or a dividing barrier to talk about where, when we were separate from Christ, right? Before God had entered in and redeemed us, there was a barrier between us and God. And that's part of what Paul talks about here. He says, he says basically, but apart from him, apart from God's work in us, we were cut off from God. We were cut off from Christ. We were cut off from the people and the promises of God. That's part of where he's beginning this Christianity 101 with these Ephesians is he's reminding them of the fact that they were separated from all of these good things. They were separate from all of this hope. And so we're going to begin again by using the Heidelberg Catechism to, to really sort of ask these questions of the text. And the Heidelberg Catechism teaches us at first to ask, as we read a passage of Scripture, what is our sin and misery, 
or what sin and misery do we see in this passage? And the first thing that we see in this particular passage is that before God saved us, we were cut off from Him. Before God saved us, we were cut off from Him. Verse 12 says this, we were without hope and without God in the world. We were without hope and without God in the world. We were cut off from God. And so the question is, what does it mean to be without God in the world? Well, one thing it means is it means to be alone, right? Now, many of us have grown up as believers. Many of us have lived our lives as believers. Many of us are surrounded by friends and family at all times. But there are others of us in this room who very acutely remember times where we were far, far away from God. We were separate from God. And we felt this acute loneliness, right, this separation from him. Uh, several months ago, I used a little clip by a guy named Louis C.K., who's a, a comedian who also happens to be pretty sharp in terms of analyzing culture. And he was talking about how one of the things that he's realized about our humanity is that we use our cell phones, and we use technology, and we use the radio in order to not feel what he calls that forever lonely, right? In other words, the realization that we're all totally and utterly alone. The truth is, though, if we're believers, we're only alone if we're separated from God. What else does it mean to be separate from God? It not only means to be alone in the world, right, that forever lonely, but it also means to be vulnerable, right, to be fearful and to be scary because your greatest enemies, right, you can't overcome them, right? Your athletic build can't overcome your greatest enemies. Your moral record can't overcome your greatest enemies. Your ability to make money can't overcome your greatest enemies. You're alone and you're vulnerable. I've mentioned this story before. It's been years probably, but when I was four years old, my parents took me to this county fair, and it must have been in Pensacola, Florida, because I think it was when, we were still, when I was still living there, and uh, I'm sure they thought, hey, this will be so fun, and I remember them taking me to this place where you got your face painted, and the people doing the face painting, like one person was a witch, and the other person was like dressed as Frankenstein, and so I remember, you know, waiting in this line, going closer and closer to the witch and Frankenstein, which by the way, four-year-olds love witches and love Frankenstein, right? That's one of our favorite things. And I remember as I got closer, uh, there was, for some reason, I don't remember what it was, but my parents said, hey, we're going to go wait just on the other side of the fence for you. We're not going anywhere, though. And I remember as a four-year-old seeing my parents walk outside of the line and on the other side of the fence, and I remember as they sort of got further and further away being filled with this utter and complete terror. And, uh, and I, as I became more terrified, I got further and further in the line until I was probably next in line, and I looked up, and there was this you know, sort of fake Halloween witch with a fake mold on her nose, and this scary Frankenstein dude, and I was like, I'm out. And so I ran to the fence, and my parents were probably 20 feet on the other side of it, and I began literally to climb over this fence and try to get to my parents. The fence was probably three feet tall, but to me, it felt like the Berlin Wall. You know what I mean? It felt massive. And I was going to do anything that I could possibly do not to be alone and vulnerable in the presence of Frankenstein and the witch. I had to get back to my parents. Part of what Paul is talking about here is he's saying, when we were separate from Christ, when we were apart from Christ, or apart from God's work in our lives before God saved us, we were alone in the world. And not only were we alone, but we were vulnerable. We were terrified, separated from our Heavenly Father. So what is our sin and misery? Man, we were separate from God. We were alone. We were terrified. We were vulnerable. Not only that, but before God saved us, we were cut off from Christ. Listen to basically verse 12 here. Verse 12 says this, remember that at that time, that is, before you were redeemed, before you were chosen by God, before you were adopted, that list from Ephesians chapter 1, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ. So not only were you cut off from God, walled off from Him, 
but you were cut off, you were walled off from Jesus. And so the question for those of us this morning, well, so what? Well, here's some of the so what's. John chapter 14 says this, Thomas said to him, that is Jesus, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me, right? So they were cut off. We were cut off from the way, the truth, and the life. We were hopeless. We were alone. We were vulnerable. John chapter 1 and John chapter 8 both talk about Jesus as the light. Again, one of the themes of Advent is this idea of light. It says this, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, Jesus, so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. And of course, then in John chapter 8, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in the darkness, but shall have the light of life, right? And so when we were separate, cut off from Jesus, we not only were cut off from the way, the truth, and the life, but we were cut off from Jesus who brings light into our darkness. There's a movie called The Mission, which I think came out in maybe 1986. And uh, this movie, The Mission, is fantastic. I totally recommend it um, for uh, any of you who are interested in uh, movies that are mid-80s and uh, roll a little bit slowly, but they're beautiful. But this movie, um, a Jesuit missionary goes up to Ecuador and uh, goes behind these falls. And again, this is probably back in the uh, 16th century. And uh, goes back behind these falls and begins meeting all of these Ecuadorian Indians and progressively, little by little, wins them over and shares the gospel with them, and many of them become Christians. Now, as soon as they become Christians, they begin to form a commune. And as they begin to form these communes, what happens is more and more Indians come out of the darkness, and they begin working together uh, on these communes where they share all the wealth that they've gained. And the, the movie does a really good uh, job of showing the darkness of their previous way of life and the light of their current way of life in Jesus is a main theme in this movie. Well, at one point, there's a discussion between cardinal, a cardinal um, who is a Jesuit cardinal, and Father Gabriel, who is the one that takes the gospel up to these men. And I'm just going to read a little section of their discussion. And, and again, remember the th themes of darkness and light in this movie. The cardinal says basically to this, he's, he says to Father Gabriel, why must they fight? In other words, uh, the... Uh, the the Portuguese are getting ready to take over this, this land again. And he says, why must they fight? Why can't they just return to the jungle? In other words, he's saying, why can't the Indians just return to the jungle? And Gabriel, Father Gabriel says this, because this is their home, and he's standing in the midst of this commune where they're all working together. And then Father Gabriel says, did you know this was going to be your decision? And the cardinal says, yes. Then why did you come, your eminence? To persuade you not to resist the transfer of the mission territories. If the Jesuits resist the Portuguese, then the Jesuit order will be expelled from Portugal. And if Portugal, then Spain, France, Italy, who knows? If the order is to survive at all, Father, the missions must here be sacrificed. In other words, we're going to have to cut off this limb in order to save the whole tree. At this point, a young native child walks up uh, to Father Gabriel and talks to him. And the cardinal says, what, what are the children saying? And Father Gabriel says this, they say they don't want to go back into the forest because the devil lives there. It's the place of darkness, right, for them. And they know the darkness that existed there. It was a place of murder. It was a place of hostility. It was a place of fear. And he says, they don't want to go back into the darkness. They want to stay here. 
To which the cardinal says, and what did you say to them? Father Gabriel says, I said that I'd stay with them. I said that I'd stay with them. In other words, what's being painted here is this picture of, of remembering the darkness that they came from and remembering the light in which they now live. And part of what the Ephesian church is, has experienced is that same transition from darkness into light, right? But when we're cut off from Jesus, we're cut off from him as the light. John chapter 11 says this, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. So what does it mean to be separate from Christ? It means you're separate, you're cut off from the resurrection and that life that is truly life. John chapter 6, again, this is this great passage where Jesus talks about being the bread of life. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, always give us this bread. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. In other words, when we're separate or cut off from Jesus, we're cut off from the thing that truly spiritually fulfills our spiritual hunger, fulfills our spiritual thirst. And again, Paul is reminding us of the bad news that we were separate, we were cut off, not just from God, but we were cut off from Jesus, the light, the life, the way, the truth, the bread. He goes on to say one more thing. He says, before God saved us, we also were cut off from his people, and we were cut off from his promises. Verse 12 says this, remember that at that time, again, that time before you were chosen, before you were adopted, before you were redeemed and restored, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise. And so what this means is, is that they were on the outside of the family looking in. They were on the outside of the promised land, a place where they could rest. They were on the outside of God's promise where he says, I will be your God and you will be my people. I'll adopt you as my daughters and sons. They were on the outside looking in. They were on the outside when God said, I will give you descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sand on the beach. And that meant everything in the ancient cultures because it meant protection, right? It meant safety, it meant prosperity, it meant security. And they were on the outside looking in at God's people and his promises. They were on the outside looking in where he said, when, Jesus, when God said, I won't give up on you no matter how bad things get. That's the message of Hosea. All these things, again, in light of Genesis chapter 15, where God performs this covenant ceremony and in this covenant ceremony, he says basically this, I'm going to make this covenant with myself because I know you can't keep the requirements of it. And so part of what Paul is doing here is he's saying, he's saying when you were cut off from God, when you were cut off from Jesus, you were also cut off from his people. You were also cut off from his promises. And so you were alone, right? You were poor. You were a stranger. You were an alien. You were without hope. You were without God. Not only that, he says you were filled with hostility towards God and towards your fellow men. Part of what Paul is doing here is he's saying your situation before God saved you was dire, right? You were cut off from him. You were cut off from Jesus. You were cut off from his people. You were cut off from his promises, and you felt it, right? You felt that loneliness. You felt that hostility of being separate from him. And so the question next we need to ask, according to the Heidelberg Catechism, is, well, so how is grace sort of the answer to those problems? How is Jesus the solution? And the good news is Paul gives us these answers. He says this, he says, because of Christ's work, we have been reconciled to God. Because of Christ's work, we've been reconciled to God. 
And he talks about this in various places throughout this section of Scripture. I'm just going to jump in at verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away, far away from God, far away from Jesus, far away from his people, far away from the promises, you were cut off. You who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Most likely this imagery of uh, being far away is a reference to the fact that only the high priest and the Jews could come close or near to God. The Gentiles had to stand out in the outer courts, much less enter into the Holy of Holies in God's presence. He goes on to say, his purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, again, Jews and Gentiles, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them, Jews and Gentiles. So now the way that they're both reconciled is to God through the cross. For through him we have access to the Father by one spirit. In other words, what Paul is saying here is he was saying you were cut off from God, you were cut off from the promises, you were cut off from Jesus, all of these things, but because of Jesus and because of the Holy Spirit, we and you now have access to God. The question for those of us in this room this morning is, do we really believe that we've been reconciled to God? Listen to that language. Do you believe that you have been reconciled to God? Not that you have reconciled yourself to God. If you're trusting in your ability to reconcile yourself to God, you should give up hope right now, because I promise you, you cannot do that. But if you have been reconciled to God through Christ, right, if God has adopted you, if God has saved you, he's the hero, then the question is, do you believe that you have been reconciled to God? Do you believe that's true for you, right? Do you believe that's true for you? You've been reconciled to God. You're in a relationship with the one who created the universe. Do you believe that's true, that you've been reconciled to your heavenly father? The good news continues according to Paul. He says this, because of Christ's work, not only have we been reconciled to God, but we're freed from the curse of the law. We're freed from the curse of the law. Listen to verses 14 and 15. He says this, that Jesus has destroyed the barrier. Again, this is probably an allusion to the, uh, the, the, the sort of the, the curtain that separated the Holy of Holies, that separated us from God in the temple. Do you believe that Jesus has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. And so what he's saying here is he's saying you've been set free from the curse of the law, right? The curse of the law is that we can't keep it, right? For any of you who've ever tried to keep the Ten Commandments perfectly, if you're really honest with yourself, you realize that you can't even keep the first commandment, that you shall have no other gods before him. Because very quickly our wives become gods, very quickly our children become gods, very quickly um, our jobs become gods. Very quickly, you know, Georgia or Auburn or Ohio State become gods. They become functionally the place that we find our security. They've become the place where we find our safety. We can't keep the law, right? That's part of the curse. And that our inability to keep it is a constant reminder of God's righteous judgment over us. However, in keeping the law perfectly, because of Jesus, we are now free from the penalty of the law. And so the question is this, do you believe that you are set free from the penalty, from the curse of the law, not because of you, but because of Jesus, because of his work, because Jesus kept the law perfectly? Do you believe, down deep in your heart, that you are free from the curse and the penalty of the law? Paul essentially is saying here that you should, right? That you should feel the weight of that freedom. He goes on to say, his third point in this, is that not only because of Christ's work in us, 
are we reconciled to God, not only because of Christ's work in us are we freed from the curse of the law, but because of Christ's work in us, we are citizens of heaven and members of God's household. Listen to verse 19. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household. In the first century, it was a really, really big deal to be a Roman citizen. It guaranteed you um, a certain level of power. It guaranteed you a certain amount of privilege. It guaranteed you a certain amount of prestige. It gave you all these rights that if you weren't a Roman citizen, you didn't have. And part of what Paul is saying here is he's saying that being a citizen of heaven is even better. Our king is more powerful than your emperor. But that's not all. Because of Christ's work, we're not only citizens, but because of Christ's work, we're adopted as daughters and sons of God. We're now part of that royal family, and we need to live like it. We need to live as citizens. We need to live as daughters and sons of God who've been adopted into his family. Several years ago, um, we adopted uh, a cat, and uh, this cat came hanging out around our house, and it was scrawny and looked like it had been relatively underfed. And so we began putting out, you know, a little bowl of food here and some water there. And as you guys know with stray cats, if you put out food and water, they become yours, right? And even if you don't adopt them, they adopt you. And so this cat, we ended up naming Bagheera. She's uh, a solid black little kitty. And uh, we adopted her, provided her with food, some shelter and some water, medical care. And uh, before we knew it, we found out that she um, was pregnant. And so Bagheera um, had some babies, right? And the babies turned into some more babies. And you know how that goes on and on. Anyway, the point is, is that we've adopted Bagheera now. And she's lived with us now for probably five or six years. We can imagine at the beginning when we adopted her, she was kind of skittish. She was kind of wary. You know, she would eat the food, but wouldn't want to get too close because she didn't quite know what her standing was, sort of, I guess, in the, uh, you know, in the pride or whatever it may be. Well, it's funny because just a, a week and a half ago, maybe a little bit less, um, I was packing to get ready to go for Thanksgiving. And one of the kids had let Bagheera in, and she had made her way into our house, back into our bedroom, and she was laying on our comforter where she was laying upside down with her mouth slightly open. And uh, she, I, I wondered if maybe she didn't have a little, a little kitty heart attack because she was very laid out. And what's funny is my bag, my big duffel bag, was probably you know, 18 inches away from her. And so I had the duffel bag up there, and I threw a pair of shoes in. She didn't move. And I threw some stuff in. She didn't move. I threw some toys in. She didn't move. You know, I threw some more clothes in. She didn't move. She just laid on her back with her mouth open. And, uh, and I went over there, and I thought, well, you know, as soon as I come over there and I start zipping up the bag, it's going to scare her, and she's going to run off. Went over to the bag, started zipping it up, makes, you know, that loud zipper noise or whatever. And she just laid there on her back. You know, she was completely at ease. Now, the reason that she was completely at ease is because she was like, I'm part of the family, right? I've been adopted. These people are safe. They're going to take care of me, and I can live like it. And that's part of what Paul is saying here is he's saying, look, remember, be reminded that you're now citizens of heaven. You're members of God's household. And how is it that we get to live as members of God's household? How is it that we live in our own homes? You get to walk around in your underwear a little bit if you're a guy every now and then, right? You get to open up the fridge and pull out some leftovers. You get to sit on the couch and watch TV. You get to lay on your back with your mouth open, and you get to be at ease. Part of what Paul is saying here is he's saying you don't have to fear God anymore. You know, the truth is if we're really, really honest down into the depths of our hearts and our souls, we would admit that our deepest sin isn't lying, it isn't cheating, it isn't stealing, it's not looking at stuff that we shouldn't look at, it's not watching things that we shouldn't watch. Our deepest, darkest sin 
is that we're afraid of God, that we don't believe that he's good. We don't believe that he's safe. We don't believe that, he's, that he loves us. And part of what Paul is saying here is he's saying, you've been adopted as daughters and sons. You get to enter into God's home and you get to rest. You get to relax. Do you believe that that's possible? Because you have been reconciled to God. Do you believe that because he's adopted you as his daughters and sons, that you get to rest and be at ease like Bagheera on our bed? Do you believe that's true? Now, again, we've been using the Heidelberg Catechism as sort of a pathway through this passage of Scripture. What is our sin and misery? And then we talked about, you know, how grace or how Jesus is the answer to those problems. But then the last thing the Heidelberg Catechism teaches us to ask is, all right, so if all that's true, especially the good news, what's my response to this grace? And I think the answer, according to Paul, is that we remember or that we choose to remember. Don't forget. Listen to verses 12, 11, and 12. They say this. Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ. There's a call by Paul to remember, right? Remember the truths of these things. As you go throughout today, remember the truth that you're no longer separate from God, but you've been reconciled to him, right? As you go throughout this day and through this week, remember that you've been adopted as daughters and sons. You're safe. You can rest. Remember, one of the first things that Paul says is that you're at peace with God. And so part of what we do and we remember that we're at peace with God is we stop living as if God needs to be pacified. We stop living in fear of God. We stop hiding from God. We stop running from God, right? Remember that you're at peace with God. Don't forget it. The second thing that Paul says is we must remember that that peace is because of Christ. Verse 14 says, and it's not on the, on the screen, but verse 14 says, for he himself is our peace. That is, Jesus is our peace. Why can you be at peace with God? Because of Jesus. Verse 17 says, he came and preached peace to you who are far away and peace to those who were near. So many of us think that we have peace with God because of the presence of our goodness. I've been pretty good lately, right? I've done some good things, therefore I can come into the presence of God. I have peace with them. Or we think, I can come into the presence of God because I haven't done so much of that bad thing I did so many times. I'm relatively free of the badness, therefore I have peace with God. But that's not why we have peace. We have peace with God because of Jesus. Remember that you have peace with God because of Jesus. Don't forget. A third thing we can see is that we must remember that we're sons and daughters of God. Don't forget it. Stop acting like a slave. Stop acting like a prisoner. Slaves and prisoners act one way publicly, but they act another way privately. Stop acting like you don't belong or that your membership is always on the line. Stop acting as if you need to hide. Stop bribing. Stop living in fear. Don't live like a slave. Don't live like a prisoner. Remember to live like a son. Live like a daughter. Rest. And then finally, we see Paul saying in this section, remember that you are in process. Remember that you're, you're not a completed work just yet. Verses 21 and 22 say this, in him, the whole building, and that is the church of all of the believers, Jews and Gentiles, in him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, that is Jesus, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Key phrase there is, you two are being 
built together. In other words, you're not a completed project, right? You're not perfect yet because you're not done yet. You're not completely at peace yet because God's not done with you yet. He's not done working on you just yet. So stop thinking that you have to have it all together right now and accept God's forgiveness, accept God's grace, accept his mercy, and accept the fact that you're still a work in process. Let's take one moment and let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you that um, though there is bad news, uh, there's lots of good news. There's the good news that you love us. There's the good news that Jesus um, has reconciled us to you. Uh, Father, there's the good news um, that we have peace not only with you, but with your son, Jesus. Father, there's the good news that we're not only uh, citizens now of heaven, uh, but we're also members of your household, that we are daughters and sons. And so, Father, I pray that through the power of your Holy Spirit, you'd actually enable us to live according to that good news, that we would live according to the truths that we read here this morning in the book of Ephesians, your word to us. So, Father, we pray all these things now in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.